You name it, we'll have it. Programs you may remember, if you're over 80, and programs that you've never heard of before. All fascinating stuff. Sunday nights, 7 to 9, right here on WBAI New York. City Watch, a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City. You are just listening to Nando and Consabor Latino. I'm happy you've stayed with us here at WBAI 99.5 FM. I welcome back our listeners uh, to our first episode of City Watch after our local programming was restored early Thursday morning. It's great to be back, and I'm Jeff Simmons, your host. Uh, I was on on Thursday, our first full day back on Driving Forces at 5 o'clock, and the reception we've been getting from our dedicated, loyal listeners like you who've tuned in tonight has been just amazing. Uh, again, it's great to be back. I want to thank all the supporters, the producers, the show hosts, the listeners, the elected officials like uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams and City Council Majority Leader Lori Cumbo, who stood on the steps of City Hall with a number uh, of us on uh, after the October 7th incident when the uh, rogue Pacifica faction uh, had replaced our local programming with national programming and all of those who advocated for us to return uh, to return to the air. City Watch has been a longtime staple on uh, WBAI. And uh, for those who are first timers here, if you're not familiar with the station, but you've been encouraged to tune in, this is commercial, commercial free, listener supported, non corporate community radio here at WBAI. We've been around for about 60 years. And uh, shortly before this uh, takeover had taken place on October 7th, uh, City Watch had moved to 6 o'clock on Sundays. And the reason that Linda Perry had moved us here is so that we could provide you during you know what would be uh, considered weekdays and even on weekends a drive time when you're going to be sitting in the car and you need something to listen to and you want something that's insightful, something where you hear a diverse array of voices. You might not always agree with what's said. You might agree with what's said, but that's all. Also why, moving ahead, I'm going to make sure that on each one of these shows that we have listeners call in during a portion of the show. We're going to do that in the second half of the show. So I just want to remind you of our number, if you've not been with us for a while, that listener call-in number for later is 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. And before we get uh, to uh, our topic of the day, uh, I do want to remind our listeners that when this took place, when our local programming was suddenly cut short on October 7th, we'd only been a few days into our fundraising drive for the fall that just started in early October. And we were actually doing incredibly well. Uh, we had a number of new BAI buddies. I'm one of those BAI buddies, and I'll explain what that means during the show. But we had a number of people who came forward to pledge uh, to support uh, our commercial-free uh, uh, WBAI here. And so, you know, of course, not having this program for a few weeks, we fell behind. And if you're a dedicated listener and you've stuck with us and you supported us and you want us to continue to succeed and you're sitting in the car now or you were at home and you've got, well, not while you're driving right now because you're not going to be able to do this on your phone, but when you get somewhere, you can still pledge to us. Um, the number, the pledge line is not working right now. We're going to have that back at some point, but you can go online and you can pledge to us that way. And the way to do it is to go online to give to WBAI.org. If you've been someone who's, who's enjoyed WBAI for much of our 60 years, please, uh, step forward and please go online today, this weekend in the name of, uh, City Watch and give to WBAI.org. Again, that's give to WBAI.org. WBAI.org. So uh, tomorrow, as most of you probably know, uh, many of you might have off tomorrow, but it's Veterans Day. 
and that's a time to pay respects to those who've served. It's a day to reflect upon the heroism of those who died in our country's service. Originally, it was called, as you may recall, it was originally called Armistice Day. November 11th was designated uh, to mark the anniversary of the signing of the armistice that ended World War I. Uh, but in 1954, that uh, day was changed to be called Veterans Day to account for all veterans and all wars. Now, tomorrow here in New York City is the annual Veterans Day Parade. Uh, that's going to be held tomorrow late morning, starting around 11 o'clock. It begins in Flatiron. It's hosted by the United Way Veterans Council and is expected to draw about 30,000 participants. Uh, this is the 100th anniversary of it, uh, and the 30,000 participants are going to make their way from about 24th and uh, and Broadway and 5th, uh, up 5th Avenue to 46th Street. Uh, now, this parade is considered nonpartisan. It's considered nonpolitical. Although, if you did not know, tomorrow, President Trump has indicated that he is going to be the first sitting president to attend the parade at this centennial event. So he won't be marching in the parade, uh, but he's going to deliver an address at Madison Square Park shortly before this takes place. And uh, in a few moments, we're going to talk to someone a little about that and about her work on behalf of veterans here in New York City. And then in the second half of the show, uh, we are going to have on, or later on during the show, we're going to have on the uh, co-editor of a book called Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War. Uh, and then actually one of the essayists is going to join us. He's going to put him on the phone uh, right after that. And during the show also, we will bring you a news report uh, from our Celeste Katz, uh, who, who uh, has been with us uh, for over a year, almost a year and a half, no, no, a little over a year right now. Uh, and even though she moved to Boston, she's still part of the WBAI family. She is someone, is a perfect example of someone who uh, has always uh, adored WBAI, loved being a volunteer like me here on the station, and wants to continue. Even when she moved away, she's like, I still want to contribute. This is such an important part of, uh, of radio history and of New York City history. So with that, I want to go to our first guest. Uh, as I mentioned, it's Veterans Day tomorrow. Our first guest uh, tonight is Lori Sutton, uh, former commissioner of the New York City Department of Veterans Services. She's a former Army Brigadier, Brigadier General, and she's served in the Army for more than 20 years. That included eight years as a soldier psychiatrist. That's the Army's highest-ranking psychiatrist. She was also the founding director of the Defense Centers for Excellence for Psychological Health and Traumatic Brain Injury, and she received a Bronze Star Medal, among other awards. Back in 2014, Mayor Bill de Blasio tapped her to lead what was then called uh, the Mayor's Office of Veterans Affairs, and then it later became uh, the Department of Veterans Services. But she recently stepped down from that position last month, and we're going to explain why in just a moment. Welcome uh, to WBAI City Watch. Hi, Jeff. So glad to be with you. And I, and I know my... Uh, Former co-host Edwina Morton uh, reminded me that you've been a guest on the show before, so welcome back, I should have said. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be back. So I gave a little about your bio. Uh, was there anything that I missed, anything that you want our listeners to know about your military service and then your service to New York City? Certainly. First of all, just a, a couple of quick things, uh, Jeff. I served in the Army for nearly 30 years, and for every one of those years, I've, I, uh, I, I served uh, really as a, a soldier, and then uh, once I got done with my training in 1989, so that was 22 years as a soldier psychiatrist, ah. but I, I, uh, you know, I was so blessed during those nearly 30 years to serve the greatest soldiers, sailor, airmen, marines, coasties, their families. Uh, it was the greatest privilege and blessing imaginable. And I could have never guessed or imagined even that I would then get this unbidden blessing uh, here in New York City. My wife, Lori, and I, we had moved to uh, Brooklyn in 2013. I didn't even know about this commissioner job, but I'll tell you, when I got a chance to put my hat in the ring, I started smiling and I haven't stopped since. 
Now, uh, you say put your um, hat in the ring. So, you know, my mind immediately goes to the news that just broke a few days ago here in New York City that you have announced that you're running to become the next mayor of New York City. Talk a little about the first seeds of that idea. When you first, you know, entertain this idea, how it came about. Well, sure. You know, over the years, Jeff, and this started when... When I was back in uniform, people from time to time have approached me and asked if I'd be interested in running for this office or another office. You know, the answer has always been easy. No, whatever I was doing at the time, I felt like I could make the greatest positive difference by continuing to do whatever I was doing at the time. And so it was an easy answer. But I will say in these last uh, several months, and really dating back to the uh, midterm. I was so really heartened and inspired by so many hundreds of my fellow veterans across the country who recognize this as a time to stand up as citizens, to put, you know, country over party, and in my case here in New York City, uh, city over self. And uh, that really gave me the courage to learn more, and of course I've got much more to learn going forward, but these last... uh, uh, 10 or 11 months have really been chock full of uh, uh, really deciding whether or not this was some, something that I thought that I could, I could make a difference. And I, as I talk to more and more folks, both experts here in New York City as, around, as well as around the, the country, and particularly to New Yorkers, the hunger is real. People are ready for a different kind of leadership, and I think politics as usual, has run its course. And so uh, by that reckoning, I guess I'm a, a pretty good candidate to stand up and put my hat in the ring. So you indicated people are ready for a different kind of leadership. How would your type of leadership differ from our current mayor? Well, you know, I, I think that, uh, first of all, let me just say, I am very grateful to uh, Mayor de Blasio uh, and, and you know, his willingness to take a chance on me. I was new to New York. I had nothing to offer in terms of votes or money or connections or anything in particular. But, you know, I found out shortly uh, thereafter that, you know, both of his parents and of the First Lady Shalane's parents served in World War II. And really, both of them have such a personal experience with what it is to be part of a military and veterans family, the struggles, the strengths, the blessings, the burdens, and they wanted somebody in this position who could make things different for today's veterans and their families. And so that's been a position I I just have cherished over these last five years, and uh, it was hard for me to step down, I'll, I'll tell you that, but James Hendon, my successor, uh, the new commissioner, he's going to take uh, this 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 new agency in New York City, Department of Veterans Services, he's going to take it really to the next level. And I'm very, very proud of very proud of what we've done over these last several years. And, and during that time, uh, you know, some of the issues you focused on uh, were homelessness among veterans and mental health services. Can you talk a little about the, uh, you know, what you did to address those issues? Sure. Well, you know, what we've discovered, Jeff, in uh, standing up, this new agency in city government you know, will we'll always be small by city standards. We went from four people three years ago to about 44 today. And what we found is that it's the perfect incubator where, starting with Indian veteran homelessness, by taking on clearly one of the most vexing, challenging issues facing our city and setting up the policies, partnerships, programs, and the system that works for veterans and their families, you not only unite the entire political spectrum, but then you're in a position to really apply those innovations to the greater good, the the larger population of New Yorkers. And that's what's happening right now. Over these last several years as a a country, we have reduced veteran homelessness by 47%, which is just awesome. But in New York City, where the vacancy rate for affordable housing is less than 1%, we've taken that number down by 90%. And we've taken the street veteran homeless number down by 97%. Now, we've still got lots and lots of work to go. You know, 80 to 100 uh, homeless veterans enter uh, the shelter every single month, but we're now in a position where we're sharing 
uh, not just with the city, but with cities across the country, what we have done here in New York that it has really helped us to achieve such an outsized difference. Now, here in the city, uh, you know, in recent weeks, we had the incident in which uh, uh, there were several uh, individuals who were homeless who had uh, been beaten to death overnight on one weekend, you know, and that, uh, you know, heightened uh, the awareness of the extent of not just homelessness in the city, but also the need for mental health services. What is something that, you know, uh, and I know it's very early because you uh, you just announced yes. a few days ago, but, you know, what would be your approach to addressing these issues if you uh, became mayor? Absolutely. Well, you know, um, mental health and mental illness is really my my uh, passion. I'm a psychiatrist. Um, I have specialized really in the military with respect to trauma. But, you know, trauma is not limited to the battlefield, but also substance use as well as really a community approach. That's 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 what I've done for years and years in the army, and what I've taken into this position. And when it comes to the mental health issues that are facing us every day, and of course we see seriously mentally ill uh, New Yorkers who are on our streets, they're in our subways, and I, I, I look forward, uh, if I'm so fortunate to be elected uh, mayor in a couple of years, I look forward to doing several things. First of all, I've worked with Fountain House uh, in New York City for the last 12 years since I was in uniform, actually. We need to bring the clubhouse, fountain house model to scale across the five boroughs, across the city. And I, I can go into more details as we go down the road, but it's just such a fantastic program for taking seriously mentally ill, over half of whom, when they join the program, are already homeless and really helping them to live really fully into their potential lives of purpose, passion, and meaning. I think it's also important to look at this as a systems issue uh, where we're ensuring that as we recognize that there are homeless and mentally ill individuals who can reach a point of actually being dangerous to themselves and where New York State actually, with Kendra's law, has been one of the leading lights in this area and I think we need to really work together with the city and with Albany to make sure that we're uh, not only uh, putting together the right number of, of institutional beds, hospital beds, treatment beds, dual diagnosis beds, as well as the community uh, uh, endeavors like Fountain House. But I really think that it's time for us to, to communicate more clearly about how families, how service providers, how employers, how all of us as New Yorkers need to be, um, we need to be confident that, that our city is working to, to care for, for those who are most vulnerable. That's how we, should, how we should judge ourselves. And I will say, I've been so privileged to work with uh, the Thrive NYC program, which as you know, the First Lady Shirlane McRae has started. You know, that is a program which, like any bold, uh, you know, aggressive, uh, expansive program takes a while to get its, uh, its bearings and to really gain traction. I am very excited about, about the work that still lies ahead and the work that is currently underway under Susan Herman's leadership and the whole, uh, uh, the whole city team that's, that's, that's rowing in the same direction. So, so as, much much more to follow on mental health and mental illness, but I am very uh, eager. This is a this is a a tremendously, as you've mentioned, the the tragedies that are all around us. Uh, this is this is this is a time for us to uh, to move forward as a city, as a as a state, as a country. So, uh, and don't read into this transition. We're talking about mental health, but I am going to tomorrow's uh, parade and talking about uh, our president coming to town and making remarks tomorrow. And this is supposed to be a non-political, non-partisan parade. Do you have any uh, concerns that this may might turn into some type of a political rally on his part? You know, tomorrow is a celebration of service. It's the one day of the year where... You know, in New York City, nobody does it bigger, nobody does it better in terms of 
the, the Veterans Day Parade. This is the 100th centennial celebration. Uh, 100 years ago, General Pershing, you know, marched up Fifth Avenue. He was actually on horseback. And when I heard that the president was coming up here to uh, join in the tribute, uh, I think we, uh, you know, we, we should be all joined in celebrating the service of our Marines, the featured service this year, as well as all of our veterans and their families. And, you know, and I do want to point out that in the news that I had read this weekend concerning the president and his uh, his alleged contributions to a number of organizations that it was highlighted again that and I know the Washington Post had first exposed this, uh, that contributions he said he had made to organizations such as veterans organizations had not come through and that, uh, you know, he is now or his foundation is required uh, to move ahead with them. I want to go to our former mayor before. uh uh, before de Blasio, he uh, now is entering the presidential race. Your thoughts on his viability and his impact on the race? You know, Jeff, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not at this moment in time fully focused on the presidential race. I am fully focused here on the city, on the mayor's race. But I will be watching with great interest as the president's race continues to unfold, and I know we've got some more debates coming up this month, and uh, so I look forward. I look forward to uh, following the presidential race closely as well. And uh, just back to your campaign. Obviously, there are a number of people who there are a few declared names so far, but some of the most commonly bandied about names, such as uh, the city controller Scott Stringer and the Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr. and uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, uh, they've not formally declared yet. They have much more name rec- recognition. What is going to set yourself apart from these other potential candidates uh, in this race? Well, I think the biggest thing up front is that I'm not a politician. Uh, However, I do have extensive leadership experience, both on the home front, uh, on the battlefield, um, also here in the city these last five years. I think, think, as I said to to begin with, there's there's a hunger uh, for someone who has not uh, made the political deals, who, as Shirley Chisholm used to say, unbought, unbought. Someone who can look at old problems and challenges through new eyes and who can look at new and emerging challenges uh, with fresh vision. And I think that's really what I bring to the fore. I'm also, as I, I said, I'm a psychiatrist. I think that, uh, you know, back to the mental health issue for a moment, the, the epidemic of suicide, the the, the epidemic of loneliness in our city and our society, uh, I really look forward to uh, uh, adding one more um, uh, one more action to those that I described earlier, and that is we've got to bring the Columbia Protocol to scale here in this city. It was developed at Columbia here in this city, Dr. Kelly Posner. It is the world's leading tool for assessing who is at imminent risk for suicide and you'll be hearing a lot more about that going down the road but we we really have a lot of work to do in the mental health mental illness arena and i uh i know that everything i've done my entire life has prepared me in this moment to lead and general sutton final question before we wrap up uh tomorrow you know uh you know, I know there are some parades here in the city. I unfortunately know that the Labor Day parade often would not draw a lot of people along the sidelines, but Veterans Day does usually, in good weather, draw a sizable crowd. What do, message do you want uh, people to take away by the presence of 30,000 individuals marching in this parade tomorrow? You know, this is a time to celebrate service, to think back over our relatives, our fellow Americans, our, our, um, our families, the sacrifices, not just since, uh, you know, the last few years, but all throughout our history. And I think this is a time to say thank you, to not just say thank you for your service, but also, you know, welcome home. We're glad you're back. And boy, do we ever need you here on the home front. Those are the, those are the, 
best words that any veteran can ever hear is that we need you here. Service is in our DNA, and tomorrow is the greatest day in the calendar year to celebrate service altogether now. And General Sutton, in closing, how can people learn more about you and your campaign? Sure. Okay. So the website uh, is Sutton for the City. Uh, and that's just, you know, Sutton, F-O-R-T-H-E, city.com. And then the email is SuttonForTheCity at gmail.com. Twitter account is at Sutton, and this is the number four. So Sutton, the number four, the city. And finally, the phone number is area code 917-280-3331. And you'll like this, Jeff. The Facebook account will be up in a couple of days, but I just found out that they need a photo ID so that they're ensuring that this is not a fake account. It's never easy. Never easy. Never easy, but that's okay. We're in this together. Thanks again, Jeff. General Sutton, thank you so much for joining me here on the uh, new debut of City Watch. Thanks again. Terrific. Keep on marching. So before we get to our next guest, I did want to uh, share with you the uh, news of the day. As I mentioned at the outset of the show, our Celeste Katz-Marston uh, is going to provide uh, news reports uh, for each one of our City Watch shows. And here's her report on the news of the day. Thanks, Jeff. The president of Bolivia resigned Sunday following a violent uproar over reports of irregularities in the country's October elections. Evo Morales said he would step down after protests fueled by reports that, quote, serious security flaws and computer manipulation changed the count in the October 20th presidential election. Bolivians, including police and members of the armed forces, engaged in mass demonstrations over the alleged election fraud. Morales one of Latin America's longest-serving leaders, had called for a new election so voters could, quote, freely, democratically, and peacefully choose their officials. Opponents of Morales, a socialist and Bolivia's first indigenous president, said he used the legal system to circumvent the will of the people and remain in power. Bolivians had rejected his 2016 attempt to change the constitution to allow him to seek a fourth term, but the nation's high court ruled in favor of allowing him to run again. Australia is bracing for more catastrophic wildfires this week after more than 100 blazes left three people dead and destroyed hundreds of homes. With the Sydney area on the highest alert, a spokesman for the New South Wales Rural Fire Service warned those in the path of the bushfires not to wait to protect themselves. Catastrophic is as bad as it gets. Homes are simply not designed to withstand fire under those conditions. Many schools will be closed. Those schools in high-risk areas, have a think about what you're going to do to reduce your personal risk. That risk is, is incredibly serious on Tuesday. You need to start taking action right now. The BBC noted Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison declined at a press conference to say if climate change is playing a role in the fires. In national news, the Supreme Court will hear arguments this week on whether President Donald Trump's attempt to end protections for the children of migrants was legal or not. Trump, whose hardline rhetoric on immigration is a cornerstone of his presidency and his 2020 re-election campaign, tried to derail the program known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, in 2017. There's widespread public support for DACA, which was created under former President Barack Obama. Beneficiaries known as Dreamers are shielded from deportation after having been brought to the country illegally as children. Most recently, the Trump administration has proposed a new $275 fee for DACA recipients for a two-year renewal of their permits and, separately, a $50 fee on certain applications for U.S. asylum. Former Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley says top aides to President Trump tried to recruit her to help them save the country by undermining him. Haley, a one-time governor of South Carolina who's been watched as a possible future GOP contender for the Oval Office, told CBS that former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and White House Chief of Staff John Kelly said Trump didn't know what he was doing, and they knew better. It absolutely happened. And instead of saying that to me, they should have been saying that to the president, not asking me to join them on their sidebar plan. It should have been, go tell the president what your differences are and quit if you don't like what he's doing. But to undermine a president is really a very dangerous thing. And it goes against the Constitution and it goes against what the American people want. And it was, was offensive. Haley's new memoir, with all due respect, is out Tuesday. 
Lindsey Graham says House Democrats impeachment effort is, quote, dead on arrival unless the House Intelligence Committee calls a whistleblower to testify about the complaint he filed against President Trump. Graham, a South Carolina Republican and former Trump opponent turned ally, told Fox News the president has a right to know and question his accuser. It is impossible to conduct an impeachment inquiry when the chief complaining witness is unknown to the president, not subject to cross-examination. The Trump impeachment inquiry is based on reports that he threatened to withhold military aid if the president of Ukraine refused to investigate Joe Biden and his son. Trump has insisted that the call in question with Ukraine's president was, quote, perfect. Multiple candidates for president continue to push back at the idea of a White House run by former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg. The billionaire and philanthropist hasn't officially said he's mounting an Oval Office bid, but declared hopefuls, including Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, are already bashing Bloomberg as another well-connected billionaire who wants to translate money into power. Over the weekend in Iowa, Sanders lit into Bloomberg at a campaign rally with New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So tonight we say to Michael Bloomberg and other billionaires, sorry, you ain't going to buy this election. You're not going to get elected president by avoiding Iowa, by avoiding New Hampshire. South Carolina and Nevada, you're not going to buy this election by spending hundreds of millions of dollars on media in California. Those days are gone. Bloomberg, who served three terms as mayor of New York, filed paperwork for the Alabama primary on Friday, with one advisor saying he was concerned the Democratic field wasn't well positioned to defeat Donald Trump next year. In local news, President Trump can be expected to be greeted by protesters when he appears in Monday's Veterans Day parade in Manhattan. Trump is scheduled to speak at the opening ceremony for the observance in Madison Square Park. According to the United War Veterans Council, he's the first sitting president to personally accept an invitation to attend the parade, which steps off at 11 a.m. from Fifth Avenue and West 26th Street and continues north to 46th Street. Mayor Bill de Blasio, who himself waged a short-lived campaign for the Democratic nomination to challenge Trump in 2020, said into the walk-up to the visit that he hoped the president would make the holiday about veterans, not himself. And Sunday marked what appeared to be the third murder-suicide in the city in under a week. The New York Daily News reports that a Brooklyn woman was shot to death by her ex at her home on Utica Avenue in Flatlands after he discovered her with a new boyfriend. The ex was found in the apartment with a gunshot wound to his head, police said. The boyfriend, who was shot in the torso, was taken to Woodhull Hospital, where he was in stable condition Sunday afternoon, according to police. The deaths come two days after an Ozone Park woman was reported stabbed to death by her husband, who then hanged himself. On Wednesday, a woman and her five-year-old daughter were found decapitated in their Harlem home, allegedly by her estranged husband, whose body was found hanging in the bedroom. The deaths come less than a month before new NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea is set to take the helm from outgoing Commissioner James O'Neill. WBAI is supported entirely by listeners like you. Go to give2wbai.org to support free speech community radio. Give to, that's the number two, wbai.org. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Now, back to City Watch with your host, Jeff Simmons. Thanks, Celeste. And again, you've been listening to me, Jeff Simmons, on City Watch, uh, WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, we are now going to go, as Celeste mentioned about Veterans Day, we're now going to go to some guests that I had booked previously uh, before the uh, October 7th shutdown of our local programming. And I was extremely excited that uh, uh, one of our guests was able to join us again this weekend. Ron Carver, one of the editors of a compelling new book called Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War by New Village Press. Ron, welcome to WBAI. 
Well, thank you very much. And uh, Jeff, welcome back on air. <laughs> thank you very much. We're very happy to be back here. It's uh, It's been an amazing experience. And it's in, in these situations, when you see the outpouring of support that you get from all corners you know, of the universe, it's, it's just been incredible. So I, I want to first, I did not read much of your own personal bio, because I want to leave that to you uh, to tell our listeners first a little about your military background, your service. Well, my, my service was in service of the uh, soldiers uh, who were opposed to the war. I, I worked as a civilian helping to set up coffee houses outside of major military bases around the United States and help uh, the veterans back from Vietnam write their stories, turn them into underground papers, and which we helped them get printed, and then they smuggled them by the thousands back onto the bases. I worked with uh, soldiers from Fort Dix, uh, set up a coffee shop in Wrightstown, New Jersey, an old Wendy's uh, fast food joint uh, building. And then we set up one in Anniston, Alabama, across the highway from Fort McClellan. Uh, why Fort McClellan? Most people haven't even heard of it, but that was the advanced training base for all chemical warfare in the United States. Napalm, Agent Orange, Agent, Agent Blue, Agent White, uh, all dioxin poisons that were sprayed on uh, jungles, uh, farmland, rice paddies, and the people of Vietnam. And uh, as far as the anthology, talk a little about you know when the concept of pulling this all together came about and, and what it took, because there are some very uh, enlightening, emotional uh, pieces in here. And and, uh, and I know our next guest will talk a little about that as well, because in the book he kind of describes the interview process. But talk a little about the seeds of this book. Well, uh, three years ago, exactly three years ago, I was in Vietnam as a photographer documenting a project called Project Renew, started in 2001 by a, a U.S. Vietnam veteran, Chuck Searcy, to clear land, mines, and unexploded ordnance in Quantri Province, a province that uh, straddles the former DMZ. And when I was there and uh, stopped first in Saigon, uh, now Ho Chi Minh City, uh, gave a, a book uh, Dr. Spock in Vietnam to the director of the museum. When she learned that I had been part of the GI movement, uh, she asked, she said she had always wanted to have an exhibit there. This is at the War Remnants Museum, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, on, on the GIs who were opposed to the war and asked if I would be a guest curator. Well, I, I knew uh, Susan Schnall, uh, who now heads the Veterans for Peace chapter in New York City. Uh, she was the Navy nurse who rented an airplane and dropped 20,000 flyers on military bases around uh, San Francisco, asking soldiers, sailors to come out and march with her against the war. She was a, a Navy nurse. I knew Howard Levy, all from back 50 years ago, a captain, a dermatologist who refused to train a Green Beret combatants and was uh, sentenced to three years at uh, federal prison. He now lives in Brooklyn, member of Brooklyn for Peace. So uh, I said, yes, I'll do that. And that was the origin of the exhibit. The exhibit opened in March 2018. We created a duplicate that is now touring universities throughout the United States. I was at Columbia University about a month ago. And and now uh, this week, if I'm correct, it opens in Washington D.C. Opens uh, tomorrow at the uh, George Washington University uh, Elliott School of International Affairs. And, and in fact, last, the the timing of that is interesting too. Be, uh, as far as it opening in D.C., can you talk about that? Well, it, it, it opens. It's Veterans Day, but it's the 50th anniversary of the mobilization against the war. Uh, which was the largest peace demonstration ever in the history of the United States, past or present. And, and so we specifically chose that, just like we chose the Columbia University event to coincide with the uh, nationwide uh, moratorium uh, teachings. 
But uh, a year ago, in December, I was in New York uh, for a book launch by um, New Village Press, a book they had just published about Diego Rivera. And the publisher of New Village Press, Lynn Elizabeth, uh, when she heard about the exhibit that was touring the country, asked me to turn the exhibit into a companion book. And she said if I could get it to her by March 1 of this year, uh, just a couple of months, uh, as a polished manuscript, she would put it in, in their catalog for the fall. And we did that. We, we uh, 4.30 in the morning, on March 1st, we clicked the, the send button and we sent her the polished manuscript. And, and now have a great companion book, 250 pages, distributed by NYU Press with some 60 different contributors. And in fact, that's where my mind was going, is talk a little about the diversity of the contributors, the servicemen and women who are featured in the book. Well, we it's largely oral histories and photographs. The uh, photographs, uh, a great many of them are by Bill Schwartz, a L.A.-based photographer who was himself a combat uh, soldier back during the Vietnam War who turned against the war, and uh, the interviews largely by Willa Seidenberg, who, uh, so so that, that's the key part, but we also have essays by many other people, from Madam Ming, who was the Viet Cong's representative to the Paris Peace Talks, uh, 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 Tran Zuan Tao, who's the director of the War Remnants Museum, uh, and we have some current uh, resistors to the Gulf Wars, bringing it up to date. Uh, we, we do have essays by Susan Schnall, by Howard Levy, uh, by many of the leaders, but also some of the uh, less known uh, key participants in the uh, GI anti-war movement. We also have uh, a couple of dozen uh, uh, covers of the newspapers and the GI press. I mentioned that earlier. Yeah, and, and that, that's, that was one of my favorite parts of the book. These are, are really, you know, uh, and our, our listeners are going to be very happy when I tell them that we have copies of this book available for uh, uh, for them, thanks to your publisher, uh, during our fund drive when that returns. Uh, but that was great. I do want to, because I know we've got to put William Short on in, in just a, a brief moment, but I do want you to, uh, uh, to just kind of explain for our listeners what you want the takeaways to be for anyone who, who sees the exhibition or who sees, reads this book. What do you want them to take away about the level of resistance? The, the level of resistance was uh, phenomenal. You had, uh, hundreds of thousands of active duty soldiers uh, marching, protesting, resisting, signing petitions, refusing to serve, uh, going AWOL, uh, uh, going into exile, uh, numbers that people are not aware of. We have photographs uh, showing that a thousand active duty soldiers marching outside of Fort Hood in Colleen, Texas, a thousand Marines active duty marching in Oceanside, California. So the the takeaway is, and, and this is significant, that in the midst of a war, uh, active duty soldiers operating under military rules, which are much stricter than civilian laws, were largely using uh, their underground papers as a social media of the day, able to build a, uh, a movement so robust that they, they, they hampered the ability of the Pentagon to continue uh, operating in Vietnam. Uh, we, we have a quote from Melvin Laird, Secretary of State's uh, biographer, uh, saying that when he came back in January of 1971, he reported to Nixon that the level of resistance, rebellion, and was leading to such a, a disruption of the army that they they ought to bring the troops home as quickly as they can or else they were going to lose the army. He didn't say lose the war. He was worried about the total collapse of the ground forces uh, and was worried that that would hamper 
uh, America's ability to operate anywhere else uh, whenever they needed to. So this, this is a level of resistance. We're holding, we're bringing this to American universities in order to convince, cajole uh, uh, historians to include the, the story of the GI movement when they're teaching about Vietnam, about the end of the war, uh, about what was going on. This is what was wrong with Ken Burns' uh, documentary. Over many hours, they talk about some individuals who changed their mind, but they didn't talk about the conscious effort of these people in the Army, not only to resist, but to build a movement uh, strong enough to finally end the war. And that's I don't mean to take away anything from the Vietnamese people who, who fought valiantly against uh, the American troops, but you've got to give a lot of credit to the soldiers who said no. And that's a very good point to end on. I know that you are, I understand you're with uh, William Short right now. Uh, and uh, so uh, for the final portion of our show, we'll be able to talk with him about his contribution to the book and about his experience. Ron, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI. And in just a moment, we can continue with William Short. My pleasure. Thank you. So you've been listening to uh, me, Jeff Simmons, your host here on City Watch, WBAI, New York 99.5, and streaming live at WBAI.org. As Celeste reminded you as well, uh, we are taking pledges. If you are a devoted listener, you're in your car, in your home right now and listening to us on this Sunday night, uh, we are back with our local programming. But because we were, we had that gap of several weeks, uh, where, uh, that rogue faction of Pacifica had, uh, basically, uh, taken over and not, you know, allowed our local programming and fundraising to continue, we do need your support. And if you could go online to pledge today, that, that email address, uh, that web address is give to, that's the number two, wbai.org. It would be fantastic if you're able to support us. And as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, we, uh, the publisher, uh, was fantastic in giving us 10 copies of Waging Peace in Vietnam. Uh, if you uh, do pledge and you want to receive a copy, please note that it's uh, uh, in support of City Watch and that you would like a copy of this book. If there's any issues, please message me on the City Watch Facebook page, uh, and I will make sure that I resolve this for you. So with that, we have on the line as well William Short, whose work is also featured uh, in the book. William, welcome to WBAI. Hi, Steve. Thanks. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. So you um, served in combat in uh, Vietnam. Uh, can you talk a little about uh, your military service? Um, well, I was drafted and um, went to Vietnam as a infantry sergeant. Um, I was a squad leader, then a platoon, a platoon a squad, squad leader, then a platoon sergeant in, with the 1st Infantry Division. And after three and a half months of combat duty, Myself, my first squad leader, and my platoon sniper, the three of us went on strike against the war. And, and what prompted that? What led you to that decision? Just about everything that we experienced with the way the war is being prosecuted, uh, the fact that we uh, didn't really understand at that point in time why we were there, why we needed to be there, um, some of the um, personal combat experiences that we had. Uh, we always talked about, um, you know, what what was going on back in the in what we call the world in the United States about the anti-war movement. Um, most of us didn't want to be there. Um, finally, after a few incidences in the field, three of us just decided to go on strike. And I was eventually, I was initially threatened with um, a court-martial and charged with leading a conspiracy to mutiny against the United States government, which eventually was uh, reduced in uh, severity to just refusing a direct order. How young? I was, one of, how I was y- one of many soldiers who were doing that at this point in time in 1969. And how young were you at the time? I was 21. I was actually one of the oldest people in my platoon. And in the in your essay, you, I mean, I'm just reading a very uh, short quote. You said you, that you felt drained and empty. You know, uh, how widespread, you know, widespread was this sentiment? You mentioned two other individuals with you, but from the conversations you had with 
those who were out in the field with you, how common was that sentiment? But were there, was there a very big fear among them that they could not step forward because they were afraid of being court-martialed? Yes, absolutely. In fact, when the three of us decided that we were going to go on strike, we sat down with our platoon when we were back off of a combat operation and talked it over with them. And most everybody in the platoon supported what we were doing. A lot of them said they wouldn't do it with us for three reasons. First one was that they felt like their families might disown them. Second was they were worried that they might not be able to get a job because they were going to possibly get a bad discharge. And the third one was that they would actually go to um, um, a military prison for doing what the three of us did. Did you have any concept at the time? I mean, you look at this book and you see that it was much, the resistance was much more widespread. Did you have any concept that it was much more widespread at the time or you felt that you were you were isolated? It was just the three of you standing up. No, we did. We did realize that there was a bigger um, movement that was going on, especially with the anti-war movement back in the United States. And almost every base that I was ever at, there was always a pirate radio station. It was run by maybe a, a soldier in, a, in, in his tent somewhere. It would be a local broadcast that might only have a range of a few miles. But a lot of anti-war, anti-war news and activity was broadcast over those radio stations, as well as um, uh, individual acts that were happening um, um, in various units around the country. In 69 was kind of early. By 1970, there were whole units that were going on strike for a day or um, doing things like even as simple as, as uh, carving peace signs in trees and, um, you know, things like that. Small acts of resistance, but there's a lot of animosity toward the, toward the war. And I know that we only have a few minutes left, but uh, in reading uh, one of the portions of the book uh, that you had described that when you uh, interviewed people, uh, there would come a point where they would, you would need them uh, to uh, take part in a photo shoot, and you would ask each veteran to bring an object that was of, uh, of personal or significant value to them when you took their portraits. What did some of them bring? Um, discharge papers, bad, you know, bad discharge, uh, things like uh, undesirable discharges, um, newspaper clippings, um, combat badges. Uh, photos of themselves in Vietnam, anything that was kind of like a talisman that would that would put them in touch with that that particular moment in time. These all came from a book that my wife Willa Seidenberg and I published in in nineteen um, in nineteen ninety two called a, a Matter of Conscience: GI Resistance During the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, uh, some of the people would bring anti you know like GI newspapers that they that they um, worked on. Because um, the book is filled with, uh, uh, and, and the portraits that are in the uh, Waging Peace book are 17 out of 58 from a matter of, from the original Matter of Conscience. Um, I, I'm holding my photograph, I'm holding the, one of the sets of court-martial papers that I received, and also a rosary with a peace sign hanging off of it that I wore around my neck and with my dog tags. How difficult was it for a number of the people that you had spoken with for this to, to talk about their stories, to talk about that time? Well, there were, I mean, many times my wife and I, when we'd leave an interview, we'd just say to ourselves, I mean, how can we keep doing this? Because they were so emotionally charged. And the way we initiated them was, you know, we might contact somebody by phone, tell them a little bit about what we were doing. And then we were driving all over the country to collect these. And we'd show up at somebody's house and set up the studio, portable studio with a backdrop, you know, dining room or in a, or in a bath, you know, in a um, bedroom or a garage or a basement. And I'd shoot, uh, set up everything and shoot a Polaroid so that they could look at the Polaroid and see how, how they were presenting themselves. Then we'd get involved in the interview and the interviews would last anywhere from two to four hours. And then the minute, the minute the interview was over, We'd go over and take the portrait. So all that weight of that experience of telling the story was then hopefully weighted in the photograph as well. And then the, the articles they brought from their history were also kind of electrically or nuclear charged by, by just the um, uh, fact of their relationship to that, you know, that such a, that emotional time in their life. Because this was a, an incredibly emotional period of time that was like it's something that that 
lives with you every single day for the rest of your life, whether you want it to or not. William Short, thank you so much uh, for joining me here today on WBAI City Watch. Thank you. So uh, we were just talking with William Short, and before that, the co-editor Ron Carver of the book Waging Peace in Vietnam by New Village Press. Uh, and as I indicated, we do have some uh, copies of this here, WBAI. Thanks uh, to the publisher. Please pledge at give to WBAI.org. Just want to do a programming note or two. I want to first thank our listeners uh, for staying with WBAI and uh, for giving us hope that we would be able to return with local programming as of this past Thursday. We want to also welcome to the WBAI family, Johanna Fernandez. Uh, she's going to be gracing our microphone as the co-host of Good Morning Nueva New York with King Downing. This is going to be an excellent show uh, that sets the table for inclusive, intelligent, progressive ideas, news, and conversation uh, from 7 to 8 a.m. weekdays. Uh, uh, I also would like to thank Max. It's wonderful to be back in studio with you here. Max, Max is going to be up next in just a few moments. Uh, so uh, it's great to be back with him. Uh, and I also want to thank Linda uh, Perry uh, for keeping up the very good fight over this uh, last month to restore our local programming. Again, I'm Jeff Simmons here at City Watch on WBAI. I want to thank you for tuning in tonight and stay tuned for the golden age of radio with Max Schmidt. Cafe. Uh, testing. Testing. Stay tuned for Cat Radio Cafe Sunday night at 11 on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. The Displaced Playwright on Sunday, November 10th. Rare artifacts from WBAI's audio history with Steve Post, Bob Fast, Severn Darden, Roddy Mud Roxby, Abe Egg, Poisoned Arts, and the Atlantica Radio Empire. And in the next hour of Cat Radio Cafe, a panel discussion on time. Sunday night at 11 on WBAI Cat Radio Cafe. And remember our slogan Do cats care about time? Yes, mealtime. WBAI's Local Station Board is the Pacifica Foundation Board responsible for local management and operations. The next meeting of the Local Station Board will be Wednesday, November 13th at 7 p.m. at the YWCA, 30 3rd Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, between Atlantic Avenue and State Street. Yes, that's right. Although WBAI's normal local broadcasting was taken off the air, the Local Station Board is meeting as it's supposed to. Meetings of the local station board are open to listeners and the public with opportunity for public comment. The meeting is wheelchair accessible. Again, that's Wednesday, November 13th at 7 p.m. at the YWCA, 30, 3rd Avenue, Brooklyn. Do you have to contribute to WBAI to come to the meeting? No. Songwriter activist. May I come and say it's now gotten confusing how to give to WBAI in Pacifica? Absolutely. Yes. That's, That's something, something we'll, we'll probably, probably address. address. WBAI is back. 
And on Tuesday, November 12th at 10 p.m., Sugar in My Bowl will celebrate by honoring the late, great Harold Mayburn. We sat with Harold Mayburn in 2012 when he released Mr. Lucky, a tribute to Sammy Davis Jr. And the thing is, most of the jobs I got was because they liked the way I come. Yeah. And one of my pride and joys who really treated me great, I mean, that's Edward Lee Morgan. He treated me so good because Lee Morgan didn't believe in clicks. In other words, his thing was, if you could play, it didn't matter where you came from. Yeah. You could play. I w- I'll always be indebted to him. That's Tuesday, November 12th at 10 p.m. Right here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Why doesn't he come? Why doesn't he come? Were you waiting for me, Dan Malley? Who's that? Who spoke? The Shadow. The Shadow? There isn't much time, Malley. They're coming after you to take you to the chair. Speak quickly. What have you to say? Just this. For the best in old-time radio thrills, adventure, and comedy, tune in to the golden age of radio, 7 to 9, Sunday nights, right here on WBAI New York.